It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 15th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Could there be a more predictable program than a spreadsheet? What can you do, after all, to change a spreadsheet? You've got cells. Those cells can contain numbers, or they can contain words. If there are numbers in them, you can sum the numbers. You can get a difference. You can multiply them. If they have dates, you could calculate the number of days between a couple of dates. You can calculate percentages, get fancy and do internal rates of return, find gross profits. You can use the spreadsheet as a flat file for an address book. Sometimes programs like Excel get misused as a database program, but for a flat file they're fine. Well, those are the kinds of things that made VisiCalc popular on early Apple computers back in the 1970s. More than 30 years down the road, we have Excel 2007, which provides cells in which you can put numbers or words. You can sum the numbers, you can calculate the number of days between days, well, you get the idea. There hasn't been a lot of change in what a spreadsheet can do. They have plugins for them now that add features, but by and large, a spreadsheet is a spreadsheet is a spreadsheet. So, why should you consider going out and purchasing Office 2007? There are some reasons. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover. You shouldn't judge a program by how pretty it looks. But I have to say that Excel 2007 is by far the most attractive, most pleasing to look at spreadsheet program I've ever seen. Being attractive isn't enough. You do need functionality, but Excel comes through pretty well there, too. Being part of Office 2007 means that Excel has a ribbon at the top of the screen, and that ribbon contains everything that you'll need. And if the programmers did their jobs right, the exact tool you need will appear in that ribbon at the exact time you need it. Well, that actually is pretty close to what happens. For example, I select a cell that has a number in it, maybe a number such as 12.5. Well, now, what is 12.5? It could be 12.5%. It could be $12.50. It could be a time, 30 minutes past noon. might be a fraction. might be part of a scientific number. Whatever number I happen to have, I can format that number exactly the way I want it, very quickly, because Excel provides on the screen, at the top, in the ribbon, all of those formatting functions. You don't have to dig down through various layers. If you've used an earlier version of any Microsoft product, you know that sometimes the tips that will pop up as you hover the mouse over something get in the way. With the 2007 version, there's a very small change that, in my mind, makes a huge difference. Tips that pop up, first of all, are larger and more complete. But more important, they pop up where they're not in the way. They don't obscure what you're trying to read or what you're trying to work on. And most of the limitations of Excel 2003 are gone. 
absolutely gone. For example, if you use conditional formatting, you used to have the option of having three conditional formats. Well, that's enough for many cases, but not all. There have been instances where I've wished to have perhaps seven or even nine different conditional formats. You can't do it in, in Excel 2003. All you can do is go in and individually hard code coloring on an individual cell. Well, that's not very good. When the number changes, you want, if it's conditional formatting, you want the presentation to change, too. Well, you have virtually unlimited conditional formatting in Excel 2007. And here's something pretty neat. If you select any cell that's part of a range that has conditional formatting applied and you change the conditional formatting, by default, Excel will select the entire range. And in most cases, that is exactly what you want it to do. If you use the Work menu in Word 2003, and we're talking about Excel here, but bear with me for a moment as we hop over to Word, you could create a menu called Work in Word, and you could drag a document into this special Work menu so that the document would always be available. Whenever you opened Word, you could get to that document with basically two clicks. Well, that's gone in Word 2007, but there's something even better. You can now pin any document to the menu. And here's where Excel comes in. It applies not just in Word, but in Excel, in PowerPoint, and in all the other Office 2007 applications. As with the rest of the 2007 suite, Clippy is gone, the little paper clip that nobody seemed to like. Office 2003 allowed me to select a different kind of office assistant, I selected the cat, and I rather liked the cat, and now he's gone. But that's okay, because online help is much better than it's ever been. Another usability improvement, the page break preview, allows you to see exactly where page breaks will occur and to change them right then and there without having to go back through several iterations of looking at page breaks and going back to the spreadsheet itself. I said there are some pretty big differences between Excel 2003 and Excel 2007. Indeed, there are. Now, numbers don't tell the entire story. The usability of a program depends on the interface, which I think is a, a pretty big improvement. It depends on the functionality of the program. Well, there wasn't too much they could change in terms of what the program could do, so all of that is still there. But it also depends on limits that the program imposes on you. For example... In Office 2003, you had a limit of 256 columns. Now, that seems like plenty of columns. But some people do use Excel to examine large database files. And sometimes those database files are very wide. They may have thousands of columns. When you try to import those into Excel, you've got a problem. You only get the first 256 data elements. In Excel 2007, that limit is now 16,384. Previously, you had 65,536 rows. That limit has now increased to 1,048,000. How much memory could Excel use in the 2003 version? It could use a gigabyte of memory. For Excel 2007, that limit is the limit of what you have installed in the machine and what's available. I said that cells can contain numbers or words, and in some cases, a cell may contain a paragraph or a lot more than a paragraph. Well, previously, the limit in a cell 
was 1,024 bytes, one kilobyte of characters in a cell. That has now increased to 32 kilobytes. As with other applications in Office 2007, you can export directly to PDF. You no longer need an application such as PDF Writer, uh, and that's actually a good thing because if you have upgraded to Vista, the PDF Writer no longer works. It will eventually, but it doesn't at the moment. There are some dumb things that have continued to live in Excel. If you type an email address or a web URL, you get a live link. I have never liked that feature. Maybe some people do. Obviously, some do. I always turn that off. Also, I rarely create three spreadsheets in a file. But that's the default. Has been for years. You can limit that to one so that when you create a new Excel document, you get just a single spreadsheet. It's easy enough to add spreadsheets when you need them. A single click will do it in Office 2007. A single click, not the two or three required in Office 2003. Some other improvements, you get different views. In addition to the standard view, you can work in page layout or page break view. That's the one I mentioned a little bit ago. In page layout, you can edit the headers and footers directly so that you can see exactly what they're going to look like when you print them. The formula bar now resizes itself so that it doesn't infringe on the top cells of the spreadsheet. That's a big plus if you have ever created a large formula or you have a cell with a lot of text in it. Tables are easier to set up and modify. If you right-click inside a table and select Create Table, it'll cause Excel 2007 to label columns, create auto filters, and display all the tools you need. You can then test drive other formats for your table by just hovering the mouse over the format in the table gallery and you see a live preview. This is something that could save a lot of time if you're trying to make your data look better. You don't make data better by making it look better, but you sometimes can make the data clearer if you make it look better. I'm not one who uses Excel a lot, but from what I've seen, this is a big improvement. This is an application that would have to receive five cats. I have to make a confession here. I am a pack rat. I keep old applications. I even have a copy of Microsoft Bob. I was going to say I have one somewhere, but I know exactly where it is because I saw it about ten minutes ago. It was on top of an old roll-top desk. Well, I certainly don't plan to reinstall Bob anytime soon, but throwing it away seems to me like discarding an artifact from the Pleistocene epoch. In computer terms, 1995 is about as distant from today as the Pleistocene epoch is, about 1.8 million years ago. Microsoft Bob was intended to be a user-friendly interface. It was intended to replace the program manager. This was a project managed by Melinda French. You know her now as Melinda Gates. Although Bob turned out to be a failure, a lot of Bob's components were later added to the Windows interface. So I can't bring myself to just drop Bob into the trash. But I can't very well keep Bob in the same filing system as all the active applications I have. Recently, when I reviewed what's on file, I found literally hundreds of CDs with applications that I will probably never use again, either because I tried them, didn't like them, or because they're earlier versions of an application I still use. Either way, I decided they shouldn't be in the active file. Well, I started writing the CDs off to a directory on the hard drive called Old Applications. And when I finished doing that, 
I burned DVDs from the old applications directory. We've got a total of 15 DVDs containing these antique, obsolete, or unloved applications. Some were even on 3.5-inch floppy disks. In fact, I had to buy a USB floppy drive to retrieve them. I still have two boxes with mainly DOS applications on 5.25-inch floppies. I don't want to just pitch those, but I don't have a computer with a floppy drive that can read those. And I really can't justify buying a a 5.25-inch floppy drive. Maybe I'll find one in a junk box somewhere. What's in there? Well, if you're interested, you're going to have to visit the website, www.techbiter.com. You'd find ABC Flowcharter 4, Adobe FrameMaker 5, Canvas 7 and 8, Dragon Naturally Speaking 3, Goldmine for Windows 95, Office 2000, OmniPage Pro 7, stuff like that. The advantage of the approach I've taken is that the applications continue to be available to me should I ever decide that I want to load one, maybe to compare it with a later version. But now the CDs aren't taking up space in my filing system. And about that same time, I decided that I ought to do something with all of the images that have accumulated over the years from digital cameras. These date back to 1998, and I'd be more than a little annoyed if they somehow became lost. That could happen if the disk drive crashed. Well, it really couldn't happen if the disk drive crashed. The disk drive would have to crash. My backup system would have to crash at the same time. And I have those files written off elsewhere anyway. So three things, three bad things would have to happen at once to lose all of those images. But could happen. What I decided to do is do the same thing with those images. Back those up to some DVDs. And to give you an idea just how things have changed over the years, my first DVD covered a period from the beginning of recorded time, 1998, until mid-2002. DVD number four in the series holds photos from July of 2003 until February 2004, so about half a year. DVD number 9 contains photos from October through December of 2006. And DVD 11 has photos from April 2007. More pictures, larger pictures. That's the cause. Still, the cost of a dozen or so DVDs, about $6, and my time, which was a few hours on a Sunday afternoon, seemed pretty reasonable. You may have heard that Net Radio is going to die this weekend. Well, Net Radio isn't going to die this weekend. By the way, that would not have affected this program. This program uses no music. It's the music programs that would have died. People who run Internet radio stations that play music thought that this weekend was going to be their last. However, that's not going to be the case because SoundExchange has agreed to continue negotiating with those who operate those streaming music services. What's SoundExchange? SoundExchange is the group that collects money from people who use music and filters it to the people who create the music. The problem is that a lot of these stations have just a few hundred listeners. That's not enough to get anybody to do any advertising on them. Yet SoundExchange wanted a minimum of $6,000 per year from each of them. If you're playing music as a hobby for a few hundred people, can you pay $6,000? Should you be asked to? An organization called SaveNet Radio quoted Tim Westergreen, who's the founder of Pandora, and that's a service I've talked about here. He said... It was getting pretty close. 
I always had an underlying optimism that sanity was going to prevail, but I was beginning to wonder. Well, you can still wonder, because it could still happen. But, as SaveNet Radio put it, Congress and SoundExchange have heard loud and clear the amazing outpouring of support for Internet radio. SoundExchange has made a commitment to negotiate reasonable royalties, recognizing the industry's long-term value and its still-developing revenue potential. I think that translates to, maybe we can wring some money out of these folks after all, let's not just kill them. During negotiation, SoundExchange committed temporarily not to enforce the new royalty rate so that webcasters can stay online past this weekend as the negotiators continue to work on things. The way they were going to figure the payments, and these would have been retroactive to January 2006, would have been about 76 thousandths of a cent per song per listener. That sounds almost reasonable until you add that $6,000 per channel per year payment. Operations such as Pandora that offer personalized streams for each listener would have been toast immediately. By 2010, the per-listener rates will be going up to 19 thousandths of a cent per song per listener. Congress is considering the Internet Radio Equality Act that provides royalty payments to be determined as a percentage. That's the system used by satellite and cable broadcasters, 7.5% of revenue. Those stations that produce negligible revenues could escape payment altogether. The question is, will the recording industry go for that? In nerdly news, most of the fake fraud alert messages I've seen recently have been getting better. The one that arrived this week might as well have come with flashing red lights, a siren, and a loudspeaker announcing, This is a fake. If you open it, you will be sorry. Step back from your computer and drop the mouse. No one needs to get hurt here. Well, it didn't quite say that. I got a quick screenshot of it before I deleted it, and then I started marking the errors. The writer, I think, would probably earn an F- in 7th grade English. I mean, it's really that bad. It's a message that purports to be from the Bank of America. I will read you the message. You are receiving this message, comma, due to you protection, comma, our online technical security service foreign IP spy recently detected that your online account was recently logged on from AM 53.17.38.161 without AM International Access Code, IAC, and from an unregistered computer which was not verified by the our online service department. If you last logged in you online account on Tuesday, July 10, 2007, by the time 5.42 a.m., from an foreign IP, there, which they misspelled, is no need for you to panic. But if you did log in your account on the above date and time, kindly take 2-3 minutes of your online banking experience to verify and register your computer now to avoid identity theft. Your protection is our future medal. Wow. The sad thing is, somebody probably fell for it. I took a look at the link the domain involved probably belongs to some poor fellow who doesn't even know that it had been taken over or didn't when it had been. By the time I got around to sniffing around the domain, the rogue code had been removed. Remember Alice in Wonderland? At one point, Alice came upon the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, and a Dormouse. They were celebrating unbirthdays. A very merry unbirthday to you. Well, perhaps Microsoft should celebrate a very merry unlaunch day. 
This week, Microsoft announced that it will launch Windows Server 2008, SQL Server 2008, and Visual Studio 2008 on February 27, 2008. That sounds like it's not a delay. Applications with the term 2008 in them going to be launched in 2008. It's only two-thirds of the way through the first quarter. However, Microsoft had hoped to have those applications available to customers before the end of this year, 2007. Now, it looks like the best they'll be able to do is release the code to manufacturing sometime before the end of the year. They won't be on store shelves or on computers until 2008. When Windows Server 2008 is available, corporate buyers will probably begin to think a lot more seriously about deploying Vista. Although some companies are moving to Vista slowly as they replace aging computers right now, there's been no headlong rush into the new operating system. And some companies say they're going to wait for Service Pack 1. If so, they're going to have a longer wait because that's not going to happen until sometime probably in late 2008. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of July 15, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. You can also send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.